This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. This week, I am excited to officially join the Evergreen Podcasts Network, and I look forward to working with other network podcasts and what the future will bring with Evergreen. Today, I am interviewing Bianca Murray about If You Want to Make God Laugh. Bianca is the author of two novels, and before becoming an author, she ran a nonprofit organization in the country of her birth, South Africa, where she worked with HIV-AIDS orphans and their caregivers in Soweto for 10 years. She runs an own voices initiative to encourage and empower women of color to tell their own stories. Bianca also teaches creative writing and hosts a fabulous podcast entitled The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, which is aimed at emerging writers. While Bianca's podcast is geared toward writers— I absolutely love it, even though I'm not an author. I listen to it regularly, and I always learn so much from the insightful conversations. I'm thrilled to pieces that Bianca could join me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast to talk about both If You Want to Make God Laugh and The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I hope you enjoy our conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, Bianca. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And I am so excited that you are here because I loved your latest book, If You Want to Make God Laugh. And I absolutely love your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. So I can't wait to talk about both. Thank you, Cindy. And it's it's lovely to be on the other side of the interviewing table. So thank you for inviting me. And it's going to be a pleasure chatting with you. Well, why don't we start out with talking about If You Want to Make God Laugh. What a beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a very personal book. It was, you know, from personal experience. And I don't know if that makes it easier to write or harder to write, quite honestly. The backdrop of the novel is a country in turmoil, because I think it's important for the backdrop or the setting of a novel to reflect the kind of turmoil that's happening with with the characters of the novel. And so I looked at South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy from 1993 to 1994, as Nelson Mandela became South Africa's first democratic president. Uh, and it looked at, you know, the onset of the AIDS pandemic, and it looked at Archbishop Desmond Tutu's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that was the backdrop to the novel. And then I had three main characters, which I'd never done before, and that was extremely difficult to do. So I had a 17-year-old black girl, a Zulu girl named Zodwa, uh, 
who lived in a informal settlement. And at the beginning of the story, she's pregnant and she doesn't want to be, but we don't know the details of that. And then I had Ruth, uh, kind of a socialite ex-stripper, very interesting character. And at the beginning of the story, she is flirting with ending her life. We're not quite sure if she's serious or not. And then I have Delilah, who's a former nun who's working for the UN in Zaire, helping the children there. And it's a story about how all of these women's stories come together and the tumultuous time in their life and how they overcome these these obstacles that they're faced with. The interesting part to me was that there were sort of the background of South Africa, but also Zaire and Rwanda. I mean, all of the political turmoil that was going on and then the individual turmoil going on for each woman. Yes, very much so. You know, uh, novels are about people in turmoil. They're about people in crisis. As much as we all want to be happy and well-adjusted people and interlinking our arms and singing Kumbaya, uh, that makes for good life, but it doesn't make for a good story. And so, you know, most books we read, we, we meet these characters in a moment of crisis. We see them struggling to overcome adversity because that's really where character is forged. And that's something that has always uh, fascinated me is, you know, how how do we over, overcome adversity? How do we overcome struggles to come out better and stronger, you know, on the other side? And all of these women are living in times of turmoil. You know, South Africa, when it transitioned from apartheid to democracy, most white South Africans were convinced that South Africa was on the brink of a civil war and they were stockpiling food and water as they were expecting the civil war to arrive. So a very interesting time in, in the country's history. And of course, everything that was happening in Rwanda Wanda and Zaire was was devastating as well. What exactly inspired the storyline for you? So many years ago, it was about 2003, when the AIDS pandemic was really starting to pick up steam in South Africa, I watched the most lovely young boy. His name was Nkosi Johnson. And he got up at the 13th annual AIDS conference in South Africa. And he spoke to this huge delegation about being born HIV positive and about his mother dying from AIDS-related complications. Uh, And he was a 12-year-old activist. And while he gave his speech, the South African president at that time, an AIDS denialist, Tabu Mbeki, he and his entire delegation got up and walked out on this child, which I think for any adult would have been devastating. Anyone who's used to public speaking would have been thrown by that. And yet this child just carried on speaking with so much grace and poise. And he just stuck to my heart. And at the same time, somebody who was close to me passed away from HIV AIDS and she'd never confided in me that she was HIV positive because the stigma of the disease was so great. And based on these two things coming together, I decided that I wanted to start making a difference and I wanted to become involved in the fight against AIDS. And so I started volunteering in Soweto, which is you know South Africa's largest urban black settlement. And I got to meet all of these either young women who were dying from the disease or these grandmothers who had lost all of their children and now in their twilight years suddenly had to look after HIV-positive grandchildren on limited resources. And so I volunteered there for 10 years and it was the most formative time of my life. They shared their stories with me. They inspired me like you could not believe. And so that was the inspiration for 
for writing this novel. It was a, a love letter to Nkosi Johnson and, and to these amazing women of Soweto. Oh, I love that. Well, that's what I really liked about your book was that it really kind of took me back to two things that I hadn't really thought about in a while. And that was when South Africa ended apartheid and then the AIDS epidemic, because you don't really think about all of that these days with the strides that have been made with helping with HIV. Yeah, absolutely. And HIV is still very much, unfortunately, a problem in South Africa. You know, it still has this huge stigma attached to it. You know, you're in a country where women don't have a lot of rights. Uh, it's a very patriarchal, misogynistic society, and women don't have the rights that they have in North American countries. And you don't think about that. So you go, well, it's easy to not get AIDS, you know, force your sexual partner to wear a condom or this or that or the next thing. But these women do not have that kind of power. They're not able to do that. And so they're extremely vulnerable and poverty makes them vulnerable. And they circumstances make them incredibly vulnerable. So, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing problem in South Africa that's now been sidelined because of COVID, which will just make the problem even even worse. You know, there's a lot that needs to happen in the country for it to to eradicate HIV. And of course, apartheid created the perfect sort of hunting grounds for HIV, if I could say it that way, because apartheid ripped apart the black family at the seams, sending husbands to Johannesburg to be sunk down into gold mines, sending wives to work for white families while their own children were being cared for miles and miles away by older women in their villages. And when you rip apart a family like that at the seams, it makes it easy for you know a virus like HIV to, to thrive and to flourish. And we, we're seeing the ongoing effects of that in South Africa. I didn't realize that HIV was still such a problem there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's not as bad as it was. And obviously, they, you know, South Africans now have access to antiretrovirals. You know, there's there's all these myths about how HIV is transmitted. Uh, there's a belief that, you know, HIV has been put into condoms, which is why many men won't wear condoms. And when I speak to North Americans about this, they always shake their heads and they go, oh, these Africans with their weird beliefs. But we all just have to look around at what has happened with COVID in the last year. And there are North Americans who are coming up with the most ridiculous conspiracy theories about COVID and about wearing masks, etc. So this is human nature. You know, we now know how to stop COVID, but we are not doing the things we should be doing. And that doesn't even relate to sex. You know, try and get people in North America to stop having sex if you can't even get them to, to wear a mask. So, you know, this is, this is human nature. And these are the problems that we're going to see playing out time and again. That was actually the first thing that I thought about when you said that was not at all these Africans and their beliefs was more like, well, we've seen that play out very clearly in the last year here, the crazy things that people will believe. So definitely, I don't think that relates to any particular culture, but it is human nature. And it's also disinformation and how quickly it can be spread these days. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, um, as an author, I speak to a lot of book clubs every week about my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, and this novel. And, you know, that always comes up. And that's a lot of the feedback I get. It's like, why won't these Africans know how to stop HIV? Why don't they take the steps to stop it? And it's just like, well, look what's happening, you know, in your own country right now. So I don't really think people in glass houses should be, should be throwing stones. But yes, 
it's discouraging on the COVID front and on the HIV front. These are things we should be able to have stopped by now. We should have been able to stop the spread of both of these viruses. And yet here we are. Yes, here we are. Well, you had to do a lot of research, I am sure, about HIV and about, I'm curious about the captive lion hunting. Right. So I didn't have to do that much research about HIV because I lived this experience. Right, right. I say I lived this experience. I, I did not live this experience. Let me correct myself. They lived this experience and I was a close observer to it. In terms of the canned lion hunting, that's something that I had to research and that was very upsetting is that there are all these hunting places in South Africa who have lion cubs that are born into captivity and then they attract tourists who think they are helping in terms of conservation. So they go to these facilities and they pay however much and they pet the lion cubs and they play with them and they truly believe that the money is going towards conservation. But no lion cub that has been bred in captivity, that has been exposed to humans in that way, has ever been successfully reintroduced into the wild. And all that they then do is make these lions used to human beings so that when Again, it's a lot of North American hunters come to South Africa and they put these lions in, you know, it's, you say a cage, when you think of a cage, it's a small cage. It's not that. It's a, it's quite a large sort of piece of ground, but it is fenced off and the lion has nowhere to go. And then these, you know, hunters stand there feeling so impressed with themselves when they shoot this lion and can come back with the lion head trophy. Meantime, this is not any kind of proper hunting. It's not tracking an animal. It's not using your wits or anything like that. Look, I, I hate all hunting, but I, I believe that there's a time and a place for certain kinds of hunting. But this is just, it's the most barbaric practice. You know, most of these men sit on the back of a truck and then just shoot the lion that is stuck in the corner of this caged off area and has, has nowhere to go. So that's something I, I like to create awareness in my writing. I like to create a cultural context so that whether it's people challenging their own inherent racism or whether it's people looking at their holiday practices, because I think that as tourists, we travel a lot and we don't think about what is the implication of us sitting and playing with dolphins that are captive in this area? Or what is the implication of us patting lions? What is the knock-on effect of that? And I, you know, I included that because I wanted my readers to think about that and become more responsible travelers. You know, when people travel, go, why are these things being done? How does this affect the environment? How does it affect these animals? And, and just questioning things further. Well, the other thing I would assume you might have had to do a little bit of research about was political. I mean, it seems like Africa has undergone a lot of political changes in the last 20, 30 years, and that that seems to be ongoing. So between when you were living there and now, I would assume there have been some changes. No, definitely. I, I don't think I would write a book about South Africa today because I have been outside of South Africa now for nine years and so much has changed. But luckily, when the story took place, which was sort of 1993 to 1997, uh, was when I was finishing high school. So I finished high school in 1993 uh, and then I was at university. So I pretty much had a front row seat for so much of what was playing out in South Africa at that time. 
game, you know, the Rugby World Cup and all of the things that I included in the novel as well. I had to go back and sort of refresh my memory in terms of them. But this book was much easier to write than my first novel, which took place in 1976, South Africa, which was the year in which I was born. And of course, didn't remember any of that. So that novel required a lot more a lot more research. It's easier to write a novel when you have lived through a particular time and when you're old enough to have very vivid memories of that time as well. That's absolutely true. And I think that's why you hear so often, write what you know. Yeah, you know, definitely. Uh, writing what you know is is simpler. Um, but at the same time, you know, South Africa is what I know, but I did not know what it was like to be a young black girl in South Africa, pregnant when I don't want to be living in abject poverty. You know, so that opens up another debate about voice appropriation. Should we as white writers be writing black characters' experiences or should we allow own voices to write their own experiences? as well. And quite honestly, in both of my novels, I wrote from black characters' perspectives, and I did so with enormous, enormous respect and great humility, understanding that there was so much that I needed to learn, and there was so much that I wouldn't know. And to that end, I hired sensitivity readers. I hired cultural experts to guide me because it was so important for me to not stereotype characters and to really get their culture and their whole way of life right. And in terms of the generosity of all the women that I spent so much time with in Soweto and these writers that I hired, I have been told that I, I represented them faithfully and that was the biggest compliment I could get. But certainly going forward, I will never write again from a black character's perspective because I really do believe that own voices are incredibly, incredibly important. I agree completely that own voices are incredibly important. But the only flip side to that to me is if you only write all white characters and all people that are just like you, then the story also becomes much more limited. And so I think on Voices stories are wonderful, especially as main characters. But I think it's wonderful to include a diverse cast in a story also. Oh, definitely. So in terms of, you know, secondary characters, instead, in terms of exposing your characters to more diversity and digging deeper and exploring perhaps your white characters' responses to the diversity around them, that's very important. But I think something that we're going to start seeing, and I think this is going to be wonderful, is we're going to start seeing more writing partnerships in terms of perhaps a white author writing alongside a black author so that you you are bringing that complexity to the story without appropriating necessarily a voice that isn't yours and, you know, working with somebody to bring that story to life. And that's certainly something I would love to do down the line, that kind of writing partnership where each person brings their true life experience to a story that will be rich in diversity while each person, you know, explores the, the experience that is their own. I agree completely. And that makes me think about The Personal Librarian, which will be out by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray in June. And that's exactly what they did. They wrote together about Belle DaCosta Green, who was J.P. Morgan's librarian who passed as white her entire life. And so it was wonderful to have the two of them write together. They did an introduction at the beginning, explaining their perspectives. And at the end, talked about in conclusion what it was like writing together and writing this story. So I do think you're right. That is a great way to kind of cover cover it all. 
And I'm really looking forward to reading that book. And I think it's going to spawn a lot more writing partnerships along those lines, because I also think that it's important for more established writers to use their platform and to use their, you know, they've, they've got a built-in audience and that's a wonderful way to help emerging writers as well get a wider readership. So, you know, I think if you have more established authors working with more emerging authors, it's not just a wonderful way to to create diversity, but it's a wonderful way to kind of use your privilege in a positive way as well to help others as they climb the ladder up. Absolutely. Well, this whole conversation is making me think about your podcast, which I absolutely love. Well, I am not a fiction writer. I really, really enjoy listening because I learn so much every time. I feel like it makes me a better reader, a better book reviewer, just to listen to your questions and your thoughts. And then every interviewee that you speak to, whether it's an author or a publicist or whoever you're talking to at the time. Oh, thank you very much. That's a lovely compliment. I just remembered what it was like being an emerging writer and everything's so overwhelming and there's so much to deal with and you have so much to learn. I've been doing this now for quite a while and I still have so much to learn. And I think it's important for us to pay things forward. There have been people in my writing journey who've been incredibly generous with me, who've helped me um, establish myself. And so, you know, that's something I really wanted to pay forward and to help other emerging writers. And it makes me a better writer too. You know, when I get to talk to amazing authors and hear what they're doing and how they did it, it sparks ideas in me. It inspires me. It motivates me. The podcast wasn't something I was planning to do. I started it last year because of COVID. And uh, I'm so glad that I did it. I never thought of myself as a podcaster at all, but I do love teaching and I do love collaborating and I do love helping people. So I feel like it's been a great way for me to do all of that. How do you choose who you're going to speak to and what the topic is? In the beginning, it was just people that I admired, people whose books I loved and things that I thought emerging writers needed to know because there's so much about publishing that is shrouded in mystery and I wanted to demystify these things. So in the beginning, I focused on the hardest things for emerging writers to do, like getting an agent. How do you get an agent's attention? How do you research agents? How do writers and agents work together. And so Jill Santopolo, who's a wonderful romance novelist uh, or women's fiction, she and I went on tour together and she very generously agreed to let me chat with her and her brilliant agent, Miriam Altshuler. And, you know, they spoke about how they work together and that helped to demystify that. And then I reached out to my first editor, Kerry Colin, who was absolutely wonderful. And I spoke about how editors acquire manuscripts. And then I started getting some queries from listeners who were interested in certain elements of craft. You know, how do you maintain tension? How do you keep good pacing? How do you develop good characters? So, you know, as the questions arose, that's kind of what I what I focused on. And now a big question was so many writers going, I don't know if what I'm writing is good. I'm kind of writing in a vacuum here. It would be wonderful to get an expert's eye on it and just to give me a bit of advice. So to that end, we launched the Books with Hooks segment and two amazing agents, Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Little 
literary agency read listeners' query letters and the first five pages of their novel to give them advice about that. And then they go back and they redraft and revise based on that. So all of it is chosen to be practical and to be useful, something that they can listen to the podcast and walk away having learned something that they themselves can apply in their own writing. And I haven't listened to those episodes yet. I just haven't gotten to them. Do they read all of that during the podcast? So I send uh, the information to them a week before. What I do is I record the query letter uh, and they give a bit of an overview of what's in the first five pages. And then, you know, they'll say, we began with the prologue and maybe the prologue wasn't the place to start. Maybe you should have started the day before when this happened. Or in your query letter, you say, this, that the novel was, you know, young adult. But when I started reading the first five pages, I got a sense that this is more an adult's novel than a YA novel, etc., etc. Oh, that's fascinating. I bet you're getting a wonderful response for that. Yeah, we we booked up until June in terms of the slots. We do three per week. So every week is now booked up in, until June. The, the writers whose work we've looked at have reached out and said they found it incredibly helpful. In one episode, we had our two agents fighting over representing one of the submissions. <laughs> So it, it was it was kind of like the literary shark tank. And that's a wonderful way, you know, for writers to perhaps get out of the slush pile, because when they submit their work to literary agents, you know, literary agents get hundreds of queries a week. They can't get to everything. And you may have written the most amazing novel, but if someone doesn't see it, that doesn't help you. So this is a great way to kind of jump to the top of that slush pile and have two agents fighting about your work, whereas that might have taken months in any other way for you to achieve that. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, with respect to Jill Santopolo, I just interviewed her yesterday, and then I was looking back at your book, because sometimes I don't really read the blurbs initially. Her name is across the top of If You Want to Make God Laugh. That's so funny how those things work out. Jill and I launched our debut novels almost at the same time, and our publisher Putnam did a pre-publication tour where Jill, myself, and another writer, Courtney Mom, went on tour together, and we got to meet a whole bunch of booksellers and librarians and book bloggers across the U.S., and that's when I met Jill. And, you know, writing can be so lonely. You sit and you do it by yourself. I tell people I sit in a darkened room and talk to my imaginary friends. <laughs> And if we, you know, are able to build up good relationships with other writers, it, it really helps because we support each other. And Jill's just one of the most lovely, most lovely human beings I've ever met. I absolutely adore her. I'm actually doing an event with her tomorrow night for East City Books. And I've loved her latest book and, and I love her. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with her. That was the first time I had, but she was delightful. And then back to your podcast. I loved the episode with Stephen. Is it Rowley or Rowley? Rowley. Rowley. Okay, Stephen Rowley, because the editor was one of my favorite books the year that it came out. And he was just so entertaining when you interviewed him. That was a great episode. Oh, he's lovely. I stalked him online for years. So tenacity pays off, I can tell you. 
his first novel, Lily and the Octopus, was the book that I fell desperately, desperately in love with. And that's when I reached out to him on Twitter. And that was before my first novel was ever published. And he was kind enough to reply to me. And uh, I absolutely loved the editor and his new novel that's coming out soon. It's called The Gunkle, which is, you know, a contraction for gay uncle. It is hilariously funny and so poignant. So for the listeners out there who love a funny story, LGBT, TQ themes. It's it's just amazing. Pre-order that. You will not be sorry. I have it on NetGalley on my iPad, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But I'm supposed to be interviewing him and I'm hoping it works out because I just think that book looks great. And like I said, I loved the editor and he was so entertaining. That was just a great interview all the way around. I, I want to move to Palm Springs just so that I can live next to him and his uh, fiance Byron Lane wrote A Star is Bored. It's a fictionalized account of his time being Carrie Fisher's assistant. And that's just a phenomenal, lovely book as well. And the two of them together make such a wonderful couple. So yes, I would love to move to Palm Springs so that I could be their neighbor. <laughs> I see them on Twitter interacting with each other and they, they just seem like they're a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, are you working on anything at the present? Yes. So I wasted, well, it's not wasted. I spent two years working on a psychological thriller that I'm not sure will be getting published or going anywhere. Certainly it feels like time wasted, but nothing is wasted. You learn along the way with everything you do. So I've put that aside and I've started something new that I'm having so much fun with. It's just so much fun. It's looking at a woman all all of them in their 80s. It's kind of like the best Marigold Hotel meets Harry Potter. And uh, we'll see where we'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. Well, that sounds like a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Magical woman in the 80s. What's not to love? <laughs> and I feel like, you know, women become invisible the older they get. And uh, we've got such amazing actresses who are over 60, over 70. They need more roles, I believe, and I believe that we need more positivity in terms of lack of ageism, in terms of the things we read. And so this book looks at, you know, female sexuality in your later years and still having power, you know, whether you're in your 70s or your 80s and not losing relevance because because you've gotten older. And I believe that these are important messages that, you know, we need to be reading and that we need to be consuming as women. There is a lot of fun to be had the older you get. You know, I tell people that I'm a true Capricorn in that I think I was born old. And every year that I have a birthday, I just feel closer and closer to my true age. <laughs> most most people I know were so depressed when they turned 30 and when they turned 40. And I was like, bring it on. And I'm looking forward to 50. So I love exploring these kinds of themes because there's so many writers that I've spoken to who only started publishing in their 50s. You know, and that is an amazing thing because we tend to focus on the young debut authors, you know, like the 30 hottest authors under 30 people who've published when they were 27. And that's great. It's wonderful to have that kind of success when, when you're young. But some amazing, amazing stories come out when you're older. Look at where the crawdads sing. Look at Delia Owens. She wrote that book in her late 60s. And look at the success that book has had. And look at her life experience that she poured into that book. That is not a book she would have been able to write in her 30s. So, you know, I think we need to, we need to embrace aging. We need to embrace the life experiences that come with aging. Uh, and that's something that I'm having a lot of fun exploring right now. 
I agree completely. I do think as you get older, you've experienced so much more. So there's so much more depth to your stories. Definitely. I've chatted with young people, you know, at publishing parties who are like 19 and you meet them and you, oh, what are you working on? And they, oh, I'm writing my memoirs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, whoa, you know, I'm 45 and I don't even feel that I've lived an interesting enough life to write my memoirs. And you've lived 19 years and definitely there there are stories that only come with age and that only come with time and that only come with experience. And there are experiences that, you know, we have when we're older and there are challenges that we face as as we get older that make for, for really good reading in terms of identity. If if you start to lose your memory, if you start to forget who you are and you forget the people in your life, does that mean you are no longer who you are? The love that is mixed up with all of that as well. Um, so that's something that I'm I'm busy exploring now as well. Well, I look forward to reading that one when it makes its way out into the world. Thank you. Let's hope it does. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Well, before we wrap up, why don't you let me know what you've read recently that you really liked? I know we talked a little bit about Stephen Rowley's books, but I'm sure you've got plenty of other recommendations. Yes. So my favorite book of last year was probably The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune. I just thought it was just the perfect COVID book to read. It was just so big hearted, so generous. It was just a warm, fuzzy book. And I absolutely loved that. But more recently, I thoroughly enjoyed The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Again, this is older people in a retirement community solving murders, old people solving crimes. What's not to love? I loved that one. I thought it was fantastic. I recommend it to people all the time. That was so funny. And it was, it was, moved along at a clip. It was wonderful pacing and tension, also very humorous. I recently read The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis. This is after watching The Queen's Gambit, which I absolutely loved. It's such brilliant storytelling. And I wanted to see how the TV show differed from the book. And it didn't differ very much at all. It was really, really faithful representation of the book. So for people who loved the um, series on Netflix, definitely go back and read that. And then something that it hasn't even come out yet, it'll be out, I think, in the next few days or so, is um, an anthology of poetry called Black Girl Call Home by Jasmine Mance. And it is just such a beautiful collection of poetry, just so accessible, so relatable. It it just gave me goosebumps time and time again. I was underlining passages as I went, and I'm not really a poetry person, but I absolutely adored it. Let me just check for you when it's coming out. It'll be out on the, out on the 9th of March. Okay, great. That's a Berkeley publication, right? Yes. Yes, yes it I, is. I've been seeing a lot about it. So good. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's good. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. It's devastating and in all the best possible ways. So those are the books that I have enjoyed most. I'm now doing a lot of reading about sort of witches and magic as I immerse myself in my novels. So uh, I read A Discovery of Witches. Um, I'm now reading The Last Apothecary. And uh, what was the other one that I just recently read as well? A Secret History of Witches. So if anybody's interested in witches and magic, these are all amazing books to read as well. And A Discovery of Witches has been made into a TV show also, right? 
Yes, yes, it has. But I haven't watched that. I'm just on the book at the moment. <laughs> I haven't either. But I love this trend for all of these books being made into these miniseries or TV series, whatever it is. It's really fun to see all these books make their way onto the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can argue about whether they faithfully <laughs> represented it and if these characters look like how we imagined them. But yeah, I, I have to agree. It is wonderful to see. The thing that I like the most about all of these books being made into TV shows is that then a lot of people that aren't aware there is a book learn about it. So I've just heard so many people be like, oh, I didn't know, you know, Big Little Lies was a book. And now they go back and read it. So I think it's just kind of a reverse engineering to get people to read. Well, yeah. And The Queen's Gambit was published in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I don't think it made the bestseller list when it first came out. But after The Queen's Gambit, the book made the bestseller list. So I love that a book gets this extra longevity because in publishing, a book normally has like a month or two to make a splash, after which if it hasn't made a big splash, then it's unlikely to. So it's also wonderful to think about how a book goes out into the world and maybe it captures the imagination 30, 40 years after it's been published and suddenly everybody's picking it up and wanting to read it. I agree completely. You said that way more eloquently than I did. (laughs) Well, Bianca, I was so excited to interview you. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. And I appreciate your coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Cindy. Thank you for the lovely experience. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Bianca's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront or at Murder by the Book, and both links are in the show notes. I hope you'll check out The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.